Gandhi found nonviolence in the Bible, the clever nonviolent strategies that are there. And it took King reading Gandhi to realize, oh, wait a minute. How have I missed this? Nonviolence being the clever action or the clever word that you use to awaken an oppressor to them trying to hold power over you in some unjust way. But the clever word and action has to be done out of love and out of a hope that that awakening happens, not just for the oppressor, but for the oppressed alike, and that a new relationship can be um, negotiated, wondered about, awakened through that interaction. Everybody. Welcome to Movement Matters. This is episode, believe it or not, we recorded this one a while ago, but this is episode six that we're releasing for season four. Uh, there's going to be a whole slew of them coming out for sort of like a another wave of season four here. We took a couple weeks from releasing, mostly because our, our trusty editor was on vacation, hitting the slopes. Well done there, Mr. Lorenz, getting your uh, your snow time. I think you were in Colorado the whole time. You'll let me know. But he is coming back, which means we're going to be releasing, let's see, we've got Today with Brian, and then next actually is Lorenz himself, and probably it'll be then the Radical Support Collective. Uh, we've got Andres coming up, Evan and Connor, Gray. Oh, I just did one with Graham Lickner. That's actually going to be soon. That was, wow. That was refreshing to say the least. All of them are. And sometimes it just, you get, you get surprises. Like, oh gosh, I had no idea about that. No idea. And it's just, they're all fun. It's all enjoyable. But the conversation, that one with that particular fine fellow really reminded me why, why this is such a joy. Um, even when there's going to be a gentleman, he's, he's agreed to join me, a gentleman named Anton, who I don't want it to be a uh, contentious discussion, but I suspect in comparison to most of what you've heard thus far, it may be. That'll be, that'll be down the line, maybe in the teens for this season, but I'm looking forward to it because I think it'll be a really uniquely educational conversation for me and hopefully for him, but you know, at the very least, it will be for me. That's all I can ask for sometimes. And most importantly, dare I say it, most importantly, very soon, because her world has dramatically shifted, uh, which means she has time for me, <laughs> we will be hearing from the lovely Ariana again. She'll be another one of our repeat guests. Got a num a handful of repeaters coming up, uh, which is great. Uh, the Radical Support Collective is kind of a repeat. Um, Casey was a repeat from earlier this season. There's a lot of them coming up. Um, Evan and Connor will be repeats, and and intentionally so. A lot of people say, "Ah, oh, man, we got to do this again." And it's it's good to do that 
see where the evolution, see what's evolved, see how we can uh, look at things again, maybe with a different awareness, a different light and, and all of that. And it's, it's exciting to be able to re, you know, reconnect with people and continue the, the exploration. And maybe eventually that'll happen with our good friend here, my good friend, Brian, who I will tell you more about in a second, because I'm getting a note here that our sponsor needs to be acknowledged. Um, it's, oh, it's Philadelphia Table Company. Did you know about Philadelphia Table Company? PTL for short. PTL is the proudest bougie table company, probably in at least the Eastern Seaboard, maybe the whole country. I haven't done all my research, but they are the bougiest and proud to be bougiest table company, at least on the East Coast, but I'm pretty sure actually that it's the whole country. I have to double check my sources on that one. Um, and that is because they make the best woodwork, um, you know, fine wood-based, dare I say, wood-based, because it sometimes they... They dabble with uh, the iron and the, the steel and the concrete. No plastic, I think, but the finest wood-based table company I am aware of. I don't think there's anything competing. I mean, Nakashima-style stuff competes, but you know that doesn't seem to be... People don't make that as much anymore, and they're integrating that, actually, Nakashima-style. If you have no idea what I'm talking about when I say that, look it up, Nakashima. You'll, uh, you'll learn a good thing or two. Uh, I've been a big fan of PTL from the beginning because, you know, I happen to know the owner pretty well. And I, I got to say, he's a swell fella. He's a swell fella. So good people making good tables, PTL. You want to you want to add a little um, bouginess, a little bourgeoisie uh, flavor to your home, any room, hit up PTL. No doubt about it. And with that, I'll say just a little bit about my friend Brian. I wanted to speak with Brian mm, partly because I, I guess I know he's a really deep thinker and I know he has a unique perspective on religion in particular, um, mysticism more specifically. And we didn't we hadn't talked in a while really, but it was, it was obvious from, no, it's, I've known him for uh, since 2015. And I, I know he, he can shed some light on things in a way that is pretty, pretty special. But there's also the fact that he just became a published author, something that I am extremely uh, excited about for him and inspired by. The book is called The Naked Path of Profit. The Naked Path of Profit. And it's it's a worthwhile read. Um, it's a translation of Samuel 1 from the Bible. And you don't need to be, you don't have to have a general, or uh, sorry, an interest in the Bible or anything Judeo-Christian to, to connect with it. That's part of what I know makes Brian special is that it's not a, it's not strictly, his way of looking at all of this isn't in a strictly academic or religiously, it's not like a religious scholar kind of attitude. Um, and that's partly because, and this goes to how he and I met, he is a somatic educator, somatic practitioner, and he his 
foundation is in somatic um, practices and awareness, specifically, excuse me, specifically, specifically the Feldenkrais method. We met, to be clear, as students in the Feldenkrais professional training program, again, starting over six years ago, or almost six years ago, sorry, wow. It's only March. <laughs> so anyway, Brian, um, wonderful fella. This was a really simple and sweet conversation. And yeah, there's some good little, uh, good little tidbits. And most importantly, recently published author. Excited to explore his perspective on uh, prophecy, if you will, the path of the prophet. And I'll leave you with this little bit that he wrote about himself enjoy. Oh, and I should say, yeah, I wrote here, we recorded this on MLK Day. So that was interesting too. It seemed to inform how we were thinking about things. All right. Brian Shercliffe directs Vitality's holistic self-care programs. Curious about how we can grow as humans on this amazing planet. He enjoys the gifts of the present moment and the opportunity to reach back into the ancient world for wisdom. He's published a number of books, including, most recently I believe, The Naked Pro Path of Prophet. As I said, a new translation of Samuel 1, 18.4. And you can discover it at vitalitybuzz.org. And I will also add that um, Brian taught scripture as a high school teacher for many years. Um, and he is a very accomplished poet. You'll hear us talking about one of his most recent poems called To the Members of My Family Who. And I may or may not read that in the outro. I think it could be worth it. We'll see. Anyway, here is Mr. Brian Shercliffe. Enjoy. All right. I want to start by asking about, I just realized a couple minutes ago, this is a, it looks like a woman behind you. And that is not obvious at first glance, at least to me it wasn't. <laughs> and the colors are fascinating. There's no, there's no obvious sort of intention or structure. It's not like there's any sort of like conventional chakra thing going on there or chakra. Uh, is this a piece of art that you, you didn't make this, did you? No, a friend of mine did. Parish Monk, this guy's name. Okay. And uh, he just created it one day he was actually doing another painting for us for a, I think a cover of one of Vitality's books. And he said, Hey, when you're picking this piece up, I want you to see this other yoga piece that I created and just write a check for anything for it for me. It's like, well, <laughs> you know, at the time I was not doing as well. And I said, well, I can write you a check and hopefully we can add a few zeros behind it someday. But yeah, I had no idea what he was going to show me. And I, he showed it to me and I was like, Oh my goodness. On the back of it, he calls it Universal Traveler. Okay. So, I see that. Uh, it's multi-textured. Uh, there, there are letters at the bottom that say, think deeply, but you actually have to look very carefully to see the letters, even when you're really close to it. I can't see them. But... And it's on the cover of our yoga book that we put out for Vitality last year. Actually, has a lot of Feldenkrais in that book, too, matter of fact, or at least discussions of Feldenkrais and his ideas and... Uh, it's been a great inspiration a, that painting. Very cool piece. It's uh, yeah, it's got a surrealist kind of vibe to it, yeah. with obvious influence from certainly yoga. 
The colors, though, are unique in terms of the way they're organized. And these three, like hula hoops, or uh, yeah, <laughs> the way that something is, you know, rotating around it. Yeah, it's you look cool. careful. I mean, there are lots of different faces in it. There's some lips here. Weird moon. Well, that gets to the surrealist side of the part of it. Then, okay, I'm gonna need you to send me a picture of that, dude. <clears throat> yeah, very, very cool. And think deeply. It says on it on the bottom. Yeah. Mm. I don't know. Do you want to do that? Do we have to do that? Think deeply. I'm not sure what that. Uh, I'm not. I don't have any idea what that's about. So. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to make any claims there either. Not on purpose, at least. Not right off the bat here. <laughs> uh, yoga and Feldenkrais. Okay, so you brought up yoga because what was his name? Parish monk. That's an actual person's name. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. Right. He's a college name. professor who. Uh, I think his job, I think as he told, as the story he told me, his job was no longer existing. The school closed and he said he didn't want to teach anymore, taught business and math. And is this a school over in Cincinnati? Um, yeah, I'm not sure it was actually in Cincinnati or Northern Kentucky where we share oh, a river okay. between us. But <laughs> but he said to his wife, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to paint. And I don't think he had any formal training. I don't know that for sure. <laughs> or at least not recent. And I think his wife, who had a career, said, well, I guess. I guess you can go do that. And <laughs> I think probably thinking that, he tells the story, that he wasn't going to make a lot of money doing that. And he makes a lot of money doing that now. I mean, he's selling paintings all the time. You can take he doesn't just tell everybody to. No, he has these amazing jazz uh, paintings, like a Miles Davis with the trumpet and the music coming out of the trumpet that just makes you go, well, where am I going to put that in my house? I mean, I've got three of his, actually four, four or five of his paintings through my house, and they're just wonderful, playful yeah. creations. Yeah, that really stands out. Yeah. It's important to have that artwork. Yeah. I don't have anything nearly as uh, playful over here, I think. I mean, I get, I'm looking around. I guess I do, but in mm -hmm. Ari's room, there's a pretty playful one, sort of more like that nice. with spirals and everything. Yeah. But, um, all right. Well, I'll be looking at his website, Parish Monk. I'll be looking at that. And you, does he allow everybody to just donate, you know, put whatever you want on the check or, or some of the... No, he sells now. He sells it there. <laughs> um I'm pretty sure he's not living in the Cincinnati area. I think I saw that on social media recently. Okay. If his whole family is re relocated permanently or if they were away for a big extended period of time. But he's uh, just a wonderful human being and great creator. Good. I'll check out the website. Good. So you're, are you at Vitality right now or is this home? This is home, but it's also vitality because we moved out of our space uh, once COVID-19 came about and we closed for, you know, mandatory month or so. We knew our landlord was going to be selling the property last year. That was, he announced that to us. He had a contract in hand. In oh, so all of your... Last year when he told us, COVID-19, March 2020, and then uh, at the end of the fall he was gonna he said you're gonna have to move out so just be ready and giving you plenty of notice be ready and then once COVID-19 hit we knew that we weren't going to be able to use our space for a while oh, and boy. an epidemiologist friend said you're not gonna be able to use that space for a long time it's a small space you're gonna fit like maybe three people in there six six feet apart 
So we decided, well, let's go ahead and pull up our roots here. We've been there 10 years and uh, see what happens. We'll move everything on to Zoom and just do what we can for the first few months. And I think expecting that we would be back in a space the end of last year. And of course that was not feasible or smart, I think for at least what we were doing. So now we're looking to, our classes were busier, more full on Zoom than they were in person. Our trainings were packed. And it was kind of one of these like, huh, isn't that interesting? Like I crave the, the interaction with people in person, you know, I mean, Zoom is one thing, but uh, just being in the space with somebody is such a different experience. And I hope that returns. That being said, it's interesting to me that all the trainings that I've participated in um, myself and then been training other people for things or inviting them to experiences that usually there is a disconnect between, oh, I had this great experience at Vitality and then the difficulty of trans, like bringing that experience into their own home, like their own practice, not my favorite word, their own playful experience, you know. But now people are having those playful experiences in their home through Zoom and it's like immediately there's a connection like, oh, I could, I already had, I already had that lovely experience over my carpet over there. I'm going to go back over there and do that again or do something similar and give myself that experience. So I've been interested how there have been benefits to doing things on Zoom. Not that I want to do it this way my whole life, but it'd be kind of curious to have, uh, you know, maybe we'll have pajama classes kind of idea, you know, where it's like, well, just stay at home and roll around on your carpet for a while by yourself and we'll connect and we can give each other some ideas and some conversation. And it's like bridging those, you know, the best of two, uh, best of both worlds in a sense, the in-person and through Zoom, in the comfort of one's own home. Well, I'm glad you're embracing it, buddy. That's good. Why not, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've been seeing people in person since I think we I started back up in June. Wow. I've been feeling very comfortable. Very I mean, you've been here before and mm. I'm pretty much just seeing one person at a time. I, I am essentially just seeing one person at a time. There's <clears throat> occasionally somebody else here, but as far as actual sessions go, it's it's a one person thing right now and yeah, that's why we ship added the uh, the new essentially new business to the space, the media component. Good for you. Yeah, we're being invited to change. Uh, we're that's a wonderful way to put it. You, as I said, you are Mister Poetry. So, <laughs> look, there's certainly a lot <clears throat> Feldenkrais wise. It's I'm curious about how that's going for you, how you're teaching that, how that's informing your uh your zooming but i i do mostly want to ask you about like i said your poetry especially your latest one to the members of my family who mm. dot 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 i put the dot 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 but also you're a freaking published author now dude right i know i didn't yeah what does that mean anymore i mean we're all publishing you're publishing right here right so we're all we now mm, no this is different <laughs> Well, I'm not sure it is. I mean, I think now there's this realization that anyone can put their voice out there. And whether it is voice or word or creation or whatever you want to call it. And I think that's a rich, a rich time. You know, I was, I was astounded 
10 or 15 years ago, maybe when social media wasn't quite as prevalent, I mean, maybe email was still kind of ruling more of the day, whatever email is now, right? Um, do we even look at it, you know, is it just a place for people to send ads to you or whatever? But uh, mostly media really exploded. It was, it was, I, I always wondered if it was, was it really the better voices, the wiser voices that were coming to the surface or was it just people that had connections and were able to get their things published or get the, get a special interview with a special someone who will broadcast their ideas to the world. And I'm not so sure that was always happening, you know, and I think we as a human species often, uh, revere wise voices long after they're dead and or revere wisdom after the person's long gone. You know, I mean, Van Gogh is considered, that's, that's trash. That art that he's creating isn't even art. It's trash until someone had the gall to actually sit there with the painting for a while and go, Oh, wait a minute. Oh, wait a minute. He's doing something here, isn't he? Oh, Oh, well that, Oh, that, I have that experience. That's, I, I get what I get what he was on to, but it was, you know, generation or so or more longer before people went, Oh my goodness. And I think we do that with wise voices too. I mean, just, you know, celebrated MLK day and, you know, I'm a big fan of his vision, you know, all the way through, you know, not everybody was a fan of his vision all the way through. I mean, um, and now we have a day that honors him, and I'm glad for that. But how many people, how many of us human beings, I wasn't alive then, how many of us human beings didn't want to hear that voice until long after it was gone? You know? And then it's... Well, and not to be, just to be a realist, how many still don't? Well, sure. And it's a challenging voice, you know, and calls every one of us to a, a different understanding of life. You know, for someone also to, at the end of his, end of his, his life, as a prophet, wasn't often called that, but to stand up and say that the war was wrong, lost him a lot of friends. <laughs> and, and, you know, you look back on that and go, who's for war? I mean, who? mind is for war well oftentimes we all are right it's with that is within each one of us and you know to want to fight someone to to solve something but he was of a, of a different mind that love was away and you know now a bunch of us hippies or whatever whatever hippies had become we're like yeah that's that's cool but how would i listen to that voice you know if i were alive in that generation or would I have gone with my anger into, I gotta fight this out instead of, ah, let me just sit here and be with it. Okay. <clears throat> that gets to a question that I didn't have any intention of going directly into, but it's been increasingly on my mind and it's relevant to all of us and has been coming up a lot in conversation with people. <clears throat> Is, is there any, is there ever a time and place? And of course you're hitting on probably one of the most important represent or, um, examples 
to suggest that there is not a time and place, but is there ever a time and place to fight? Yeah, I don't know. In a more in a conventional sense. I don't know. Yeah, I don't either. I don't think the the wise decision is ever to cower away and hope it goes away. I don't think that's smart. Mm-hmm. But I'm a big a big fan of nonviolence, you know, and, and you know, bring it back to MLK and of course finding it in the roots of of all these traditions and not just not knowing it was even there. So my understanding of what I read MLK anyway is um, Dr. King with his degrees and such, all those studies, all those sermons that he'd heard didn't, and this is true of most of us, didn't know that the Bible was what inspired Gandhi. (laughs) (laughs) Gandhi found nonviolence in the Bible, the clever nonviolent strategies that are there. And it took King reading Gandhi to realize, oh, wait a minute. How have I missed this? Nonviolence being the clever action or the clever word that you use to awaken an oppressor to them trying to hold power over you in some unjust way. But the clever word and action has to be done out of love and out of a hope that that awakening happens, not just for the oppressor, but for the oppressed alike, and that a new relationship can be um, negotiated, wondered about, awakened through that interaction. So that was sitting right there in the Bible, you know, and now, you know, do you know, I read a little bit of Gandhi back in college. Do you know how he found that interpretation? Because it's easy to imagine the alternative, quite frankly. Well, the alternative's in there, too. I mean, that's the great thing about the Bible. Multi, <laughs> it's multi... Uh, I don't know. I'm not... I'm multi-voiced, not. multi-yarned. It's <laughs> 1,200 years of people writing to one another, at one another, at often the operative term. Uh, done a lot of research on this recently, but working. Well, on- yeah, you just wrote a book. You just translate. What did you translate again? Um, first book of Samuel, and it's the yeah. the first seventeen chapters and a few extra verses. So, chapter one through eighteen, verse four. Um, Why'd you pick that book? Well, I'd done all this. Well, first, I taught scripture as a high school teacher for many years, and so I'm you know I'm reading these texts not in the ways that they're read in churches or in synagogues or wherever. We were reading them with, as we did in this freshman class, you know, kind of as they were written in a sense, as the story unfolds, not in little snippets here and there, but like, how does this author deal with life during this time? And what were the situations that were causing this author to write in this way? What were the, what was the context of this person's, life, even though we don't know the person, you know? Mm-hmm. So I'd work, I'd been fascinated with this first writer called the Yahwist. Most scholars call this person Jay. I jokingly named this person Sweet Lady Jay because I'm convinced it was a woman. And I'm I have there. that book. You know, you, you gave me a copy of that. Oh, wow. Yeah. So we're you in our, our li- <laughs> what's you that? Yet. It's good kindling. It burns well. Yeah, yeah, I didn't burn any of it yet. Should, should I burn it? No, I'm kidding. 
But that writer is so playful and crazy and outlandish and crazy, sexy body. I mean, the kind of story that would make you when somebody would be telling it near you would make you, (laughs) you know, you, you would have to, you would bust out laughing. Like, I cannot believe this is being spoken. And in this like crazy, punny, funny way. And I was fascinated by that. So I did a translation of that and was like, wow, that's pretty cool. And wanted to do something on prophets because the prophets are essentially just poems or raps, you know, and they get, they look pretty wooden on the page in the Bible. But if you were to read them in Hebrew and hear them, it's like, oh, this is basically like modern rap. You've got this double entendre, triple entendre. And they're like, wait a minute, which way did you go with that? You know, it's meant to like disturb you. Like, wait a minute, what was, what, what, what was that? What was that awaking you from your, from the humdrumness of life? And I'd been working on all these little translations of all these prophets and was kind of stuck. And then uh, didn't really know what I was doing with all of that. And I, we were in New York for our phone in Christ training. And I w- wandered down to the Strand bookstore, as I often did during our trips, at least once each time we were there for training. And just was poking around, had no idea of what I was looking for, and saw this book by this scholar named uh, Ted Jennings, recently died maybe a year ago, and it completely jolted me into like realizing what it was I was trying to write, because there are all these wacky things that happen in the Bible that nobody talks about and nobody wants to talk about. Like what? Uh, well, one first Samuel was one of them. <laughs> and this guy had this take on this. And I was like, I read this and was, I bought the book. It was priced crazily. It was this it was, it was used book that was like 25 bucks. And I was like, what am I doing? <laughs> I, I knew I needed to buy this. And I brought it home to Cincinnati and I That's sat expensive there. for a new book. It is. Exactly. <laughs> I knew I needed to have this and needed to read this. And I brought it home and sat right in the same chair and it stunned me what I was reading. It was confirming a lot of the guesses that I thought were there. And one Samuel was essentially a text about awakening and it is full of those playful puns. It's full of this crate. I mean, everything that is said is like this crazy sexual pun that's designed to awaken you to like, wait a minute, what was just said there? just as the prophets were always playing with, you know, to awaken people to what is as they were dealing with, what are we going to do with that enemy? You know, this, this that enemy you said, yeah, this foreign nation that's attacking us. What are we going to do about them? And the, the prophet would offer prophets would offer these crazy poems to awaken people to, you know, what was happening as the, as their classes grew more distant, you had a very wealthy class and you had a, poor class in the middle, the middle got stretched. It's a little pretty similar to what we're experiencing, I think, economically anyway. And the prophets realized that if their nation were going to, were to be attacked, there would be no defense because, or their defense would be compromised because the, it's often, at least in their time, maybe still the case today, it was the poor that fought the battles. They were the front line. And if they are not cared for, why in the world would they fight? Or maybe they don't even have the energy to fight. They've not been fed, you know, or they've lived outside and, you know, 
inhospitable conditions. And um, these prophets, especially this guy named Amos, who was a low-class worker who just sat there as a shepherd, sat there, and you know, shepherds have all this time in the world, right? They sit there and watch the animals. And this guy sat there and thought, gosh, Syria is getting very strong, old nation of Assyria. It's getting very strong. And gosh, this northern country is so weak. And if they fall, then we fall. And nobody and I, nobody's taking care of the poor. We're in toast. So he came up with these clever little raps and went up and tried to announce to that northern country, hey, we better wake up here. This is not going to be good. You know, Assyria is going to come gobble us up. You first and then us. And nobody listened to him. They ran him out of town. And uh, what he said ended up being the case just a few generations later. So much so that even the very educated started listening to what he had to say and repeating it and bringing it forward in new ways, including this well-educated priest of the temple in Jerusalem, Isaiah, considered still today some of the best poetry out there. Um, Even he would greet people as they were walking toward the temple and shout out these obscene things to awaken them to the present situation. But like a soothsayer kind of situation? No, more like, uh, I mean, what would it be like if you were about to, you were on your way to the, the temple for your religious observance, your religious duty or whatever. And, or that doesn't have to be the temple. It could be any, any building where you're going to go and offer your, your time to appease the gods, whatever you want to say about that. And this guy who's in charge of the place stands up front and says, waste of your time, waste of your time. Don't even, don't even go there. Your heart's not in it. Neither's mine. The, the priest, the person that's in charge of this, saying this kind of thing. You know, we all have blood on our hands for the way that we've treated each other. And here we are going to try to go and wash our hands clean by trying to appease this and do these specific things. Don't waste your time. Don't waste your time. Instead, we need to wake up, you know, and offering these wild visions just to say, look, we better get it going. Better get, we better wake up and realize what's happening here. We're losing ourselves and we might even lose our livelihood, our nation, our whatever, whatever it is that we depend on for security. And I think that is, that's true of our time. Who are the prophets that we are not listening to today? You know, who are the people, who are the voices that are not being heard that are onto it, that have their finger on the pulse of the situation much better than you and I have, right? And we, we try to be listeners in some ways, right? But who are the people that really, really get it, you know? And I think that's the kind of coming back to that point about publishing. Well, for so long, the, those voices are not, they're not the ones that get published. You know, they're not the ones that get raised up. They get press time. It's to like, in some ways to, oh, give you your one minute. Thank you for that. And then we're off to this other thing that's so much more important and not so much. But now. Who are you paying attention to? 
Who do you respect right now? Anyone that walks into a circle. Anyone that sits in a circle with me is who I want to listen to. So right now I'm listening to you, right? And, you know, Have you been- I'll, and later on I'll be in a class and I'll listen to who shows up in the class and really begin to listen about that person's experience. You know, and then I'll, you know, I'll call up a friend and I'll listen there, you know, and, um, you know, I'll listen to their experience and, you know, really try to wonder, you know, what is, what is, what is, well, what is happening? You, you've been invited into my circle, so you're, you've come into mine, so I'm, I'm interested in you. <laughs> Well, let's pretend for a moment that you're seeing it, that you see it, that you're a voice that needs to be listened to and respected. Let's pretend, since I'm not sure you want to actually admit <laughs> that you are. Um, funny. Tell, me, tell me about this last poem, or at least the last one that you quote-unquote published to the members of my family who... Mm. I have it in front of me if you want to want me to read any of it. Well, that, that poem just came, I was getting ready to, to fix dinner on, uh, I think it was Sunday after the, you wrote this recently, I'm guessing. Yeah. Yeah. I wrote it right. Uh, a few days after the, the, yeah. uh, the riot insurrection protest, whatever word you want to put around it at the Capitol building. I would call it a terrorist attack to be most yeah, accurate, yeah. I think yeah. to be relatively accurate. Yeah. And it was bothering me the whole, I mean, it bothered me a lot when it happened, but it bothered me for days so much so that that Sunday, so that was on a Wednesday, January 6th was on a Wednesday. Yeah. Yeah. And that Sunday that two weeks ago tomorrow. Yeah. That Sunday, I was just sick to my stomach, and I, I knew what it was about, but I knew I couldn't figure out a way to get at it. And uh, I know, you know, and I think this is tr probably true of all of us, you know, I, I've got friends on every edge of the spectrum, politically, religiously, <laughs> uh identity wise, you know, all the, so, you know, I try to hear these different voices and I'd heard of somebody I knew who was going to drive to Washington DC for that protest. The initial was just going to be a protest. And I was so struck by hearing this. It made me sick to my stomach to think of this person. If this person had chosen to, storm the Capitol and get into some kind of altercation with people to the point where people would die. Um, it made me ill to think about that as I know this person, love this person. And I was walking around all that Sunday, just like, gosh, what is this? And at the same time, knowing too, that there were people, um, people that were at that protest who had no, I mean, you can see videos where they had no intention of harming anyone. Matter of fact, there were some people protecting people there. There's some, you know, where people were getting roughed up and you see people grab them and pull them behind a line and, you know, to let them get out of there to safety reporters, I guess. Um, so there are a lot of, there are a lot of different 
I think there are a lot of different people and a lot of different uh, intentions there. Um, and who knows where this friend of mine would have fallen. And this friend of mine, I consider this friend family, right? Um, so that I think that inspired me to kind of wonder about all the, who is my family, this larger family, and how little we agree on much of anything anymore. And yet we all sit at the same table. And what is that, it? That word is, I was tempted to add it to the pot here a little bit ago because you used um, you used a different word that reminded me of Tristan Harris. Uh, oh, toast. You used the word toast. There's a quote from, are you familiar with Tristan Harris or Tristan? Mm -hmm. I, forget, I think the film, The Social Dilemma came out of last year and I, I was surprisingly um, moved by it. I, surprising mm -hmm. because I honestly expected it to be pretty um, straightforward and predictable. Like, yeah, we're being manipulated. And if you're not aware of it, all kinds of effects are going to be, you're going to be driven to um, act in an impulsive and addict addictive behavior kind of way. Mm -hmm. Your psyche is going to be subtly shifted in all of these ways that you're not aware of. And you really need to know this before you go too deep or continue in this context, this relatively new 15 plus year context at all. Um, it was much more than that. That was the predictable side of it. The, the part that I was surprised by was the very specific and explicit, I think, point of the film in this particular, the main person in the film, Tristan Harris. Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, his thesis, if you will, is that the problem here is less about social media directly, which is a big deal, but mm -hmm. it's very superficial. The problem here is that we've lost, and that there's a couple of things I'm going to sort of footnote here. We've lost an understanding of our foundational agreements mm -hmm. as, of course, in a, it's all about scale. Um, in the context of a Feldenkrais teacher training program, it's not even necessarily clear if everybody has foundational agreements. In any context, is it clear that people have foundational agreements? Sure. Forget about the context of a country, just in any context, in any scale. Right. In the largest scale, perhaps, being the species. So his literal quote at near the end of the movie is, without a shared understanding of what's true, I believe it, he uses the word true, but I think that's essentially the same as real, um, or even a, a willingness to admit there is truth or reality, were toast. So you used the word toast a moment ago. I'm fascinated by that point, and it was really shocking how direct that was in this documentary. And it's really driven me to respect myself more because I had largely been aware of that without knowing that it mattered as much, without trusting my own my intuition. I was largely aware of that for a while because it's intuitive to me. Like, how the hell can we function without being, without some foundational context and congruency and harmony and, and rhythm? I mean, just our understanding of the body and some, the essence of somatic education is that. Our understanding of ourselves in a just, you could say, purely physical way is that understanding. Everything has to be congruent in a sense. So it's just a matter of scale, broaden the scale, enlarge the scale. 
can we have that together in a in these larger contexts? First off, I don't know. I believe we can, but I don't know. But more importantly, I don't think we've ever had it. So there's two two footnotes. Yeah, I don't think we've ever had it. I think the idea that we had it is a is fiction. <laughs> um, and I think what people haven't yet hit on, even Tristan and I was listening to him and Yuval Noah Harari, even they're not quite seeing what I think is really critical, which is that never mind whether or not we've had these agreements or can have these agreements, we have these assumptions about what being human really is or requires or how being human has to, uh, how, does, how, how does it truly, I guess I'm better at writing sometimes. What is it to be human? There are yeah. assumptions, there yeah. are explicit assumptions that are actually imposing unintended limitations upon our capacity for these agreements. And to whatever extent these agreements could be the preface to something, I would say, better or an evolution, an evolved experience together. So two part there. I don't think we've ever had these foundational agreements. The idea that we have is largely fiction. And two, there are foundational assumptions that we're not owning, which I think are getting in the way of our capacity mm. together. Yeah. Do you need somebody to legislate these foundational assumptions for for you and me? Or do, do we just look in each other's eyes and realize, oh, that's another human being there? <laughs> well, the legislative process would largely be forceful. So I suspect, like you said, nonviolence. I don't think the legislative process is is certainly enough to right. whatever I mean, laws are only gonna get us so far. Education. I totally, I completely agree. You know, and I think it's so easy. Well, yeah, I knew to keep, like sitting there and waiting for our leaders, whoever our leaders are, to like make things better for us when it comes down to the way you and I relate with each other in the way that I relate with the person that I encounter as I'm walking up the street, you know, do I see this person as another human being, you know, and for that matter, the dog that's over there, do I relate with that? Per oh, there's another living being, you know, the grass that I walk on, you know, do I relate with that as a, as a, as life, the breath that I, the, that I breathe in that so many millions of other people have breathed in, before me, millions upon millions upon millions of people have breathed in before me, you know, through the, through the ages. I mean, do, do if that's my starting point, then yeah. Okay. You want to have laws that legislate the way I should be. Okay, good. That's, that's lovely. But it, it's more important to me. I more important from my perspective is, my own experience of life and wanting to then realize, Oh, I need to be, I want to, I want, I want to know something of the life within me and something of the life within someone else and appreciate that and uh, find ways that life can live. The people can live, that beings can live, that creatures can live, you know, in, in some sense of joy in the midst of this life.
And I don't, I mean, I, I, I hope our leaders figure something out, but I know that it comes down to, I think it'll really come down to the way that you and I are with each other and the way that you and that all of us are with one another. And, um, and even, even with someone that I completely disagree with, like, I don't agree with this friend that was going to drive to, to DC and, I think just to protest, I don't think to cause any violence. Yeah. You know, what do I know? But I don't agree with the, this person's viewpoints about, about life, but I can still see that person as a person as valuable as someone from whom I can learn something, even if I don't agree. Well, somebody with whom I can sit down and just enjoy life together and maybe be changed by each other in that, enjoying life together that I might come to know something of their perspective and whether I agree with it or disagree with it, just begin to appreciate it. And that hopefully through that, that experience with each other that we're both invited to love, even if we completely disagree. (laughs) Well, yes. And implicit though is not completely disagreeing. Implicit is, some kind of even if it's ineffable and beyond words there is some kind of agreement there that is implicit because you're not killing each other you're not saying screw you you're not in conflict so let me just take a second here to this is to me this is extremely juicy stuff especially because this this guy tristan is doing some very serious and provocative quote-unquote work and he's engaged with some very important People like Yuval Noah Harari is a very important writer and, and historian and thinker of our time. And they're, I mean, there's some of, to me, there's some, they talk about people getting published and having recognition. There's some of the most publicly respected um, thinkers alive right now, in my opinion. And even they, I love it. I'm so grateful for the work they're doing. Like, I want to make sure that's abundantly yeah. clear. And I was listening to a very, they just did a conversation that was really worthwhile. Um, it's so obviously about somatic education though. And here's the, there are a couple of key factors. Um, one of the most obvious ones, they acknowledge that part of what needs to happen is we recognize not just the value, but the requirement of being lifelong learners. <laughs> it's like, yeah, that's... So here, I'll back up a second. If agreements are rooted in stories and, or myths and our ability to imagine something, if our agreements are inherently rooted in the, our capacity to imagine based on some kind of story and or myth, then the, in that specific context of being a lifelong learner, obviously built into our myths thus far is the idea that there's some kind of ending that's that's and that's error number one right off the bat so the fact that they're seeing that is extremely inspiring to me yeah and two this notion of individuality this is the more provocative one because it's not as obvious i think built into the the myths and stories that seem to be behind the scenes, if you will, for most of us. I'm curious what you think of this. It it looks to me like the assumption is, 
if you say something as simple as the individual is not as important or or even it is as important as um the whole if you will that we're signing ourselves up for an inevitable totalitarian or dystopian nightmare there seems to be that assumption that i perceive with a lot of people in other words it's as if to suggest that the individual is as important or even less important than the whole which is there are all kinds of footnotes to, that need to be built into that um, it's as if we're saying that we're going to inevitably lose something that makes us quote unquote human um So to me, built into that assumption is essentially the belief that we're either individuals or we are not human at all. And the, (laughs) I saw you smile. Isn't it easy to see how that's obviously not the case, that we're obviously both? Isn't it easy to see and isn't it, or at least simple to understand that conceptually, that we are both and that clearly we have not lived with that awareness? (laughs) Yeah. So just those two things alone, the recognition that we are both and yes, being quote unquote lifelong learners, I even if we agreed on that, to me, it's that opens up a lot of possibilities, as far as I can tell. Yeah. Is that going to make sense to every person you talk to? <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting you say makes sense. Yeah. That's another part of what you've always acknowledging is that part of what makes humans so, quote unquote, unique from every other species is our our ability to believe in nonsense. And I've been thinking, well, that means we also have the ability to believe in what makes sense. I think we're at a point, I guess this is where where I'm at, is you know, we're at a point where, unlike the 60s, unlike the 40s, referencing MLK and Gandhi, we're, we're, it seems to me like we're more ready to embrace a new story. Yeah, I could be okay. You 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 think so too, huh? You don't think that's just a no? I think a new story is is coming about. I think what we've I think we're in a place right now where a threshold moment where we realize that the stories we've been telling ourselves, whether we agree or disagree with them, no longer serve us. And I think that's why we're seeing religion. Like I was a religion teacher. So I think I have some credibility with with saying this, I think religion's dying. Modern religion, as it's been practiced for one or two or 3,000 years, is is dying. It's the old barn that's about to fall over. And if you're smart, you run from it and uh, get out of the way. Because those the, the old stories um, may no longer serve us, may no longer help us get to where we, wherever it is we want to go as human beings. And yet there's still wisdom there. It's not to say like, oh, just throw the baby out of the bathwater and let's get going. It's uh, No, that would be dangerous. Yeah, our whole yeah. language is based on... Extremely, that would be extremely dangerous. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, our there whole is, way to communicate is based on these things, and all of our assumptions are there, and all of our guesses, and all of our whatever. But I do think we need to be wiser. People do it. seem to think that throwing the baby out with the bathwater is okay, which is that concerns me too. But yeah, me too. Yeah, go on though. Me too. So. So just to kind of maybe maybe that's how this so that the reason Sam that Samuel's thing interested me so much is here's this guy Samuel who's raised in the house of these priests whose job is to be part of this religion this cult around the ark and eventually the the foolish sons of the priest march the ark into battle and the ark is lost and the priest hears about it and he dies and his kids died in battle and there's this young boy, Samuel, who's left without his job, no longer exists. There's no ark to take care of, and there's nobody to take care of him. And so he wanders off, and he has these wild experiences of the breeze, ecstasy, things that just like, oh my gosh, that was amazing. And the breeze is Yahweh. And Yahweh keeps having given him these experiences of ecstasy. Well, when have you and I known ecstasy? We've known we've had something of it, right? And I'm not talking about drugs. I don't. I don't think it's not never been my thing. But you know, I mean, have you ever had been in a movement class where suddenly you just feel like, oh, oh my gosh, that was amazing. You know, I have some experience. I, there's something. Oh my gosh, I can't even put it into words. You know, or in relationship or in sex, or in a conversation, or in a meal with someone, or just outside, and suddenly something just catches you, and you're like, oh my gosh, I had this glimpse of the all, of the infiniteness of life, the infinity of life, uh, in that split second, you know, and that's what this guy is after, this Samuel guy is after the rest of his life. He leaves behind the old religion. The ark gets recuperated eventually, and brought back in, and he has no part of it. He, he tends to, he becomes this minister for the wind that invites people to experience the wind. And, uh, and it's not state religion. It's not the cult around the ark. It's not what was, it's this experience of what is. And what's even more clever is he names the experience like others before him, Yahweh, which in Hebrew is the verb, the verb to be. Have an experience of Yahweh, the present, the the moment, the wind, even sounds like breath or wind, you know. And I think that is the the cusp upon which, the threshold upon which we are right now. Are we just going to go back and try to have the experiences that all of our ancestors had, thinking that that was going to be the wise thing to do? Or are we going to do what they did and they experienced the present moment and some new thing emerges as a result that is a, a watershed that invites us to some new sense of life. Yeah, I think that's well said. That's the fork in the road. Yeah. I don't, that was a great way to put it. Thank you. It's true of politics too. It's true of the religion. Well, there's no, but there's no difference. There's no, there's no, right. despite our, uh, <laughs> I guess, belief that there's a difference or that we've managed to keep them quote unquote separate. There's obviously not. And it's been bullshit ever the whole time to think that they're not. 
we're f- <laughs> one of the first words that one of the first phrases that every politician whether they're crossing their fingers or not is implicitly meant to agree on is that God blesses this nation. Right. Come on. There was no distinction really. It's all the idea that they're separate is just a lie. It's bullshit. Yeah, I mean, so, yeah, I mean, uh, but we don't need to go down. I like where you're at with the pointing out the fork in the road. I I don't need to highlight the obvious. The fork in the road is not obvious because like you just said, it's either embrace this always. The opportunity is always there to embrace the moment and allow for something new or cling to the past, cling to the identity, cling to the story. Yeah. It's obvious that it's a fork in the road right now. Yes. And, and can studying the past help us to realize where we are in the present moment? Yeah, sure. But oh, yes, yes, of course. down to, yeah, can we have an experience of, of the moment? And gosh, we're in a pretty distracted place to have a lot of that right now, right? I mean. <laughs> you think so? Why do you think so. that? I'm not sure I know what you mean. With our gadgets and so many shows we can watch and all these sounds we can we can put our little buds in and well, we you, miss okay. the whole experience that's happening something unmediated, else. unmediated by anyone something else unmediated I, I appreciate what you get what you did there that was nice a nice pun but something else you said about ecstasy which you didn't use this word but it's it's all about embody being present with your body and embodying the experience as opposed to it being a trip or some sort of um, stimulant-induced temporary. It's always going to be temporary, but is it something about something you've embodied or some kind of stimulation? Um, Sounds to me, or it looks to me like it's pretty feasible to just looking at you <laughs> to not be distracted. It's feasible, feasible to not be distracted. I'm distracted all the time. <laughs> Let me rephrase that. All right. We have an idea. We have a, another belief that there's this uh, endemic of distraction and um, attention deficit and, mm. um, you could say analysis, paralysis, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I don't feel that myself. I don't see that with you. I don't feel that myself. Do you really believe that that's true? I think it happens in my life. I mean, oh, okay. <laughs> I can have both, right? I mean, I, I get, I can, I can have both experiences of both. Ecstasy and analysis paralysis. <laughs> you know, unmediated experiences and then wanting to, uh, let's see what's on that uh, subscription that I bought. And is there a show I can watch that I'd, I'd like to distract myself for a little while? But that's not new. That's We've been able to do that for decades. Sure. But now it's, it's, it's exploded a little bit more though, right? <laughs> There's a, there are a lot more choices. There are a lot more possibilities. Um, there are a lot more voices that are being shared, which is a gift too. But again, is it, is it everyone's voice? And is it the voice of my friend that lives right over there that I should be listening to instead of, 
you know, let's dial up another, let's dial up another series and get into this instead of sitting down with someone and having a conversation and being moved by somebody right there in front of me, you know, who I agree with on some things and disagree with on others. And yet we can still be human beings together. Well, I think you're allowed to have both, don't you think? I hope. I, don't, I haven't met anybody that completely agrees with me. I would probably want to disagree with them just to see what would happen. <laughs> this guy agrees with me on everything. You must be nuts. That's right. <laughs> All I guess in a way I'm saying, don't you think that we're being a little unnecessarily hard on ourselves? Like, let's, I'm not sure that there's any, I don't see much value in being that, being critical of ourselves in that way. I think there's well, a lot more to be, you know, don't get me wrong. I, I get, I, I'm re-watching a show right now at home because it's just fucking fun. <laughs> it's just fun. And it's a good thing to be able to do that, especially because you need a break and it's yeah living in certain areas. If I, I fantasize, I romanticize even about, like if I lived in a less populated area would i go to bed earlier would i sit outside and just look up at the stars more etc and just be my would my rhythms change would my actual use of time change probably but that's that just looks like a really great way to be hard on myself yeah sure sure I'm not trying to be hard on myself in that way, but I am wondering about what it is, what are the experience, what are the opportunities I'm giving myself to be alive, to feel alive <laughs> in the moment and how much I fill my time with stuff that, I don't know, might be taking me away from life, right? And, uh, getting me swirling into worry and anxiety about things or whatever. I get that. I appreciate that. I know. It. I, I, I hear you. It's, I mean, there's a great quote, uh, Henri Nouwen, famous spiritual writer, um, near the end of his life wrote something. I can't remember where this was, but he said, at some point I realized that what a wasted time it was for me to, go and watch this show and read this book and do all this. And I should have just locked myself in my closet and just sat there and noticed my life. That <laughs> okay. I'm alive. What's this you know, guy's the, name? The gift of that, the gift of like, Oh my gosh, I'm breathing. Oh my gosh. I feel myself sitting here on this chair. Oh my gosh. I feel the light changing. Notice it with my eyes and actually feel it some other way that the light's, changing as the sun goes up or down you know that that is the stuff of life right you know and i think well that's that there's that i guess i try to give myself an opportunity to have that something of that experience every day but i also dial up this show that i know made me laugh and cry last time i watched it and i wanted both of those emotions instead of just letting them come to me i wanted both of those things so i'm watching it again right I hear you, and it, it's it's important. You're, uh, I've, there's no debating this. I guess for me right now, there's this strong. I think I'm very engaged 
in wanting to support the understanding that we're we're good we're enough let's let's and i know you know where i'm coming from with this like there's an if there's an endemic of anything which has probably again been part of these foundational myths and stories it's i'm not enough and it shows up in countless ways so i i value fun despite you know despite how i might look like appearance wise to some people or how i might come across to some people as being <clears throat> not you but believe me i'm aware people don't always think that i'm a fun loving guy or lighthearted they don't know yeah they don't know you they don't know me that's right those those crazy kooks having fun and playing and being playful I probably value that more than anything else. And because I think largely we have this, we are overly saturated in, with um, being hard on ourselves and, and reinforcing all the ways that we unintentionally and intentionally tell ourselves we're not enough, we're not good enough, et cetera, et cetera. And dude, if that show that you watch at the end of the day helps you feel a little bit better and most of the time you're engaged in the moment and you're being very you know, you're you're locked in the closet i say give yourself a break and enjoy it <laughs> oh yeah i agree i mean i do it every night <laughs> well, my favorite show let's watch a couple episodes okay it's time to go to bed i'm gonna sit there and meditate for a few minutes whatever meditate means i'm gonna sit there and and I'm going to fall asleep. Whatever meditate. I like that. Yeah. What the hell is that anyway? What is this meditation thing? Right. What are you watching? Do you mind saying? I'm watching Shit's Creek again. And I'm, I was it's late. It's a great show. I didn't watch it until last year when I had a bunch of time. I, I just watched it last year for the first time too. Yeah. I'm on round two again. Yeah. Something to me studies these stories too. Like, like how did they craft this? And, I'm interested in that. That's also one reason I watch things again. I watch a lot of things again, just to kind of like, oh, Queen's Gambit. I think I watched three. That or four was really five. good. Yeah, you know. But again, to understand you know, that there's there's something that I miss. That's true of life, right? This maybe that's why we meditate or pay attention to our dreams or whatever uh, to sit and do nothing, contemplate because we might have missed something that was that was a gift earlier on and. It's like, I want to be with that again. What was that? Yeah. Well, especially because something like Schitt's Creek, I'm not so sure about Queen's Gambit, but Schitt's Creek reminds you of that, literally. That's on it. That's probably the, um, you know, the thesis of the movie in a way. Yeah. To yeah. embrace what is. Embrace who you really are. Yeah. As you are. It's true. And there's, there's something a beauty and value and gold as you are. You don't have to dress it up or you don't have to put on a show and all of most of the time that's just a facade. Right. I actually really loved the um Patrick and David relationship. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's very yeah. beautiful. Moving. Yeah. That's impressive to transcend yeah, you know, norms, if you will, like yeah. that. It's beautiful, right. right? 
Have we reached the crescendo of our time together, my old friend? It's been great talking with you. <laughs> All right. So you're a published author, so to speak, although apparently you think we all are, so I won't congratulate you too much. Um, but I think you deserve to be congratulated. Feldenkrais, real quick, where are you? Are you um, available for sessions? Are you doing like Zoom yeah, games and Zoom FIs uh, with people? I figured I might as well promote something for you. Oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Vitality is uh, dropping classes, donation-based classes that a lot of people... All, all through Zoom, right? Through Zoom right now. We'll have another we'll have a space again here, hopefully the end of this calendar year, 2021. Um, yeah, and lots of people drop in from all over the... Right now, all over the country. Beautiful. Cynthia Allen and I have... Uh, she's the person that created the Christ Awareness Summit. And uh, she and I offer these Bones for Life movement intelligence trainings, which are kind of like a bite-sized chunk of Feldenkrais, Feldenkraisian ideas through his student, Ruthie Alon. Heard of her. Esther. She's one of the original 13 students of Moshe's. And uh, she just died less than a, just a few weeks ago. Oh, my God. 90 beautiful years of life. And no idea. Her ideas are, have moved me tremendously and uh, been a great gift to work with Cynthia, who was my teacher with movement intelligence, was my mom's teacher 15 or 17 years ago, um, just to share them, share these trainings that people around the world are participating in. Um, I think I might, I don't think I meant, I think we were just chit-chatting when I said this, but the other day, somebody from Australia was in the training that we were offering that started at 2 a.m. and finished at 6.30 a.m. her time. And so I got to watch the sun come up through her windows on tomorrow. Wow. Oh. I mean, we are one. This planet is one. You know, just in Feldenkrais, we talk about oneself as a unity, as a one. There are no parts within the one. It's true of our planet as well, if we have that perspective, right? true the universe as well it's one that the we are swimming in the all and uh what a gift it is indeed that is <clears throat> as i attempt to characterize for most people that is the whole point of what we call somatics to essentially understand the inherent i would call it connectedness or yeah connectedness of life or existence uh, i couldn't help but look up ruthly here because that's a big deal i know she's a big figure in the feldenkrais world she didn't die of covid did she no no okay there's no obvious disclaimers here about her uh passing well, wow she had a stroke uh maybe two or three weeks before she had died so okay well, that's yeah she's amazing hmm. just an amazing thinker playful mover and could invent things on the spot that would, you know, you and I would feel better immediately. Hmm. Just incredible. May we, may we have that, a taste of that spirit, you and I, Colin, and the ability just to continue to listen for that creative pulse and uh, find something that's helpful for, for each other and for our world. Yeah. Amen to that, buddy. Curious, is there a big Ruthie Alon quote from Mindful Spontaneity, maybe? 
Uh, oh, that's not one that I want to say. Uh, <laughs> I'll find one for later. There you go. There you go. Hmm. Well, shall we leave it at that, sir? Sounds good to me. What are you up to now? Where are you headed? What's the rest of your day look like? Need to finish laying out this uh, Samuel book. Trying to figure out Adobe InDesign, which is quite a program to use. Getting closer. Have fun. You too. Teach well, friend. You too. Thanks for your time, Brian. Thank you, Colin. Bye. Bye. And there it is, Mr. Brian Shercliffe. Wonderful fella based in Cincinnati. If you're anywhere near there, go check it out. Get a Feldenkrais treatment. uh, Learn more about the path of the prophet. I'm going to read one piece of his really beautiful poem called To the Members of My Family Who. And I'll start here. Yeah. And then I'll leave you uh, a good farewell. Be well. To the members of my family who'd rather watch violent shows on TV than hold each other's hand in the dark nights of our soul, who'd rather watch the game than take a knee for much longer than it takes to sing a silly old song about killing, who'd rather we didn't have to face the harsher realities, messes we've created, and let fester in our bedrooms and family rooms and dining rooms and backyards and front yards and across the street at the neighbors and across the pond at another neighbor's and, 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 and. As we sing, love is the answer, and it's easy if you try, and all our modern hymns and songs, and we feel good about it for a minute, and then forget to the members of my family, to the members of my family, members of my family, my family, family. He's a poet. Thanks, Brian. Be well, everybody.